Welcome to the ESG Matters podcast. My name is Amat Gomis, and today I have Kat Kraft, Director of ESG Strategy at Taryn. Welcome to the ESG Matters podcast, Kat. Thank you very much. Glad to be here, Amat. I think a great thing that we can do to start off is just, can you tell us how did you get interested in sustainability? Everybody's path here is different, so I'm curious to understand how you got into this field. Sure. So... I spent several years working in environmental science, field ecology, and uh, geospatial technology at that point in time was a tool that I used to collect and analyze and understand complex phenomena and interrelationships in the natural world. Later, while in graduate school for natural resource policy and economics at Colorado State University, I focused my studies on market-based program and approaches, programs and approaches to ecosystem services protection, including the establishment and trading of values and assets like carbon, water quality, or species habitat. So ecosystem services is a broad way to say, to discuss the benefits that nature provides to humans include things like food, fuel, water purification, nutrient cycling, pollination, and climate regulation. The latter, climate regulation, is eating a lot of a lot of focus. That's the, the focus of a lot of work in today's sustainability conversations and initiatives. So that work at in my, my studies there led to my working at Ecosystem Marketplace as a geospatial analyst. Ecosystem Marketplace is a think tank where uh, I worked in the process of building out a a geospatial database of market-based ecosystem services protection initiatives in the U.S. That effort was to support the organization's mission to help market-based solutions for environmental stewardship to flourish through increased transparency because markets must have transparency and equal knowledge among stakeholders and enable to perform at equilibrium. And that's a big part of the ESG initiatives and a central tenet of the SEC's new proposed rules around climate-related disclosure too, right? Transparency to support market performance. So since then, I've joined Taryn. I've been here since about 2018, and I'm now managing our ESG initiatives at the company, as well as driving our product strategy and market research to discover and shape new geospatial solutions that enable climate resilience. And I think one thing that is really important that you talked about was the use of geospatial information to solve and to help understand complex problems. And when you talk about climate change, you talk about sustainability, you talk about ESG and the natural environment, that is such an important component because, as you rightly stated, the SEC is having these, this guidance come out talking about how are you managing risk specifically climate risk, mm-hmm. where is a building, where the building or where your assets located so that investors can better understand. So one thing I am curious about when you, when you think about GIS and sort of just the complex data, is there a way that people who are maybe not well-versed in GIS or well-versed in understanding the complexity, is there a system or, or something that can help them understand or distill really complex problems and issues that utilizes data in actionable items or 
understandable steps that they can take. Because one thing I've noticed has been a lot of stakeholders as well as decision makers struggle with the onslaught of information and how to best understand it. Oh, a hundred percent. And, uh, that is something that we're really working on at Terran. How do we take, especially in the remotely sensed data world, right? There's, there, uh, are thousands of satellites in uh, orbit sending data every second. There are planes collecting LIDAR data, which we, we leverage and utilize photogrammetry and imagery. There are drones. There are a plethora of geospatial and remotely sensed data inputs that without good targeted analytics that can distill that information down into the most salient business relevant issue, it's just overwhelming, right? And that's what a lot of, we have a plethora of data out there. And the dilemma is now, how do we make that data actionable and useful and do so in a way that is on a timeline relevant to decision-making? So that's one of the things that we work at a lot at Terran. How do we take this plethora of remotely sensed data from orbit, from planes, and uh, turn it into decision-ready intelligence in a timely, in a, at the speed that facilitates decisions in a quickly changing world. And then on top of that, I think it's really something that I know in where I sit, working in sustainability, working in ESG has been this emerging topic of resilience. So sometimes people refer to it as ESG plus R. And even when we think about the SEC rules that are coming out that they're asking for comments on, it's not necessarily just the information coming about energy or about the facility's location, but it's really talking about how are you as a company managing risk and leveraging resilience so Mm. that way investors and consumers can be protected in understanding that their data, if if that's a resource, or the supply chain is, is safe when you think about critical supply chains. So I wonder when we think about leveraging this data, have you seen companies start to leverage this type of information to identify places within the U.S. that are either less impacted by the impending climate change, or do you see them uh, situating businesses and uh, making those decisions to place their facilities regardless of the impact to climate change, but really looking at how they can then strengthen the building or the facility to withstand a hurricane like on the East Coast or... Mm -hmm something in Tornado Alley or an earthquake on the West Coast. So I'm curious, how are you really seeing the application of businesses leveraging this information? So great question, Amat. And I think the answer is, is both, right? Geospatial information can inform where to or where to not site a facility or asset for those that are currently in the development or planning stages. The same information can also be used to help increase resilience and strengthen and fortify assets against climate risks when those assets are in an area 
that been there for a long time, they can't be moved, say take a, a pipeline or an electric utility, warehouse and so forth, or communities at large, right? It's oftentimes the option to move that asset to safer ground is not a reasonable or feasible one. And so when that's the case, the company has to figure out how to fortify their asset in situ. The um, existing climate risk models that are out there now are really good at predicting where and how the physical risks are increasing in severity and frequency over long time horizons. And it is really useful to say that, okay, well, in, in 20 years or 50 years, my asset is going to be exposed to increased risk of heavy precipitation events or wildfires. That's very useful data but it's not very actionable. When we look at some of the, the frameworks out there for climate risk analysis and disclosure, such as the TCFD or the SEC's new regulations, there are multiple different components or steps that, are ex- that companies are expected to follow to mitigate and manage that and, and disclose about their physical climate-related risks. And Identification of those risks is just the first step. Then there's assessment and measuring those risks and managing them and reporting on them. And so that those climate models that are getting increasingly more accurate on on the market today are really great for that first step. But assessing, measuring, monitoring, and managing those risks and reporting on progress toward resilience is something that is a space where Taryn is offering something that's not really available on the market today in terms of risk reduction and resilience strengthening. The companies, so say you have an asset, and I'll kind of walk you through a bit of a case study here. You have companies that are able to increasingly understand their risk exposure to acute physical risk events such as flooding, wildfires over the short, medium, and long term. Once they understand those, their exposure to that, they really need to, in order to like move through that, the rest of that process to attain resilience, they need to pinpoint where those climate risks threaten, become hazards on the landscape and then threaten assets. They have to prioritize threats to their system. They have to determine how site conditions can be modified to fortify assets. And then they need to monitor and measure progress toward physical resilience over time and report on that, that change and improvement over time. And I think that there's a lot of, there's been a lot of focus on nature-based solutions as an answer, as a part of the answer to our carbon dioxide program, a problem, excuse me, our carbon dioxide problem. And that same lens, you know, viewing our landscape and our you know, the environmental variables surrounding our asset, that same approach that or the same approach to looking at what we have in nature to become part of the solution rather than a problem can be applied to climate, physical climate risk resilience as well. For example, when when we go in and we remove vegetation from a landscape. And which is often required in the installation or maintenance of a physical asset. That removal of that vegetation significantly alters the site's hydrology and the way that the water moves across the surface. 
thus the soils are less stable and more prone to erosion or worse, landslides. So you have this primary climate threat, climate risk of increased precipitation that then interacts with the site conditions, the immediate site conditions surrounding an asset, which may be you know, removed vegetation, that then propagates a second, a secondary risk of a landslide or or mass soil movement or erosion that impacts a nearby stream with with stormwater. So we found in some of our work in the Appalachian region that landslides are occurring throughout the area at 20% more shallow slopes than they have historically due to changes in precipitation patterns and human development. So now you have these climate risks, these big climate risks that are manifesting on the landscape as hyperlocalized climate hazards in the form of inundation or problematic hydrology or landslides or erosion. And there's an opportunity, right? That the climate, climate risks and opportunities. There's an opportunity to turn those hazards into tools for resilience if the organization understands what what those topographic hydrologic vegetative conditions are surrounding their assets and how to best leverage and modify them and manage those conditions to protect and fortify their assets against climate risks. Well, thank you for that. That was really helpful at context to understand what and how this can be used to improve and also identify risk and opportunities. One thing I thought about when you were talking about it, we've really focused a lot on the private sector, but I'm really curious about cities and communities. So to your point, a lot of communities, new developments, suburbs have been clear cut the vegetation. They've uh, created systems that aren't necessarily native to the local environment. And they've also been a drain on the sort of the water usage on, on that and that location. And then also with cities, cities have, especially on the East Coast, very well established. They're not going anywhere. They can't pick up and move, but they have to manage these risks as well and understand a lot of the same things when you're talking about hydrology and different matters as well. So have you seen or have you had a test case with local governments or suburban communities on how they can sort of manage this because with the climate crisis occurring now and just intensifying in the future, it's just a matter of time before they also experience even more dramatic changes. And and it would be great if they could understand what will happen as well as what type of steps they can take to mitigate it through the use of large data like the geospatial data you mentioned before. Yeah, so we actually flew data. Flew, we collect fly to collect our data. We're we're typically Terran is typically doing so using lidar or light detection and ranging technology that is able to model the Earth's surface and terrain in a really high resolution fashion to understand those hydrologic vegetative and topographic elements that we were talking about. We did that for a community here in Colorado and identified a uh, a stormwater 
problem near a retention pond next to a school that if left unmanaged, that retention pond could become a real problem area and potentially break and flood the school area in the event of a heavy precipitation, heavy precipitation occurrence. So that was, that's an example of a a public entity benefiting from uh, the use of geospatial data, high resolution, high temporal geospatial data to assess ongoing conditions in their area that could lead to secondary crises following the primary crisis of a a flooding event. Oh, that's great to understand. And and thank you for that. Also, when we think about geospatial data, and you talked about the various ways in which you collect it, are there any upcoming trends or technologies that you've seen that will make this data even richer? Because like you said before, there's thousands of satellites, there's all this data, but is there something that you see on the forefront that would make this either easier to interpret or clearer to view? I think that's a great question, Amat. I think that there's going to be, we think there's a lot of data out there right now that's going to only increase within the next five to 10 years. And it's wonderful to have such a large, great access to that data and increasing that data is becoming more and more democratized and easily accessible through platforms like Google Earth and so forth. But again, I think it, going for a circle, full circle back to their start of our conversation to make use of that data, I think there's going to be a lot more focus on data science and computer vision and artificial intelligence and machine learning that can help quickly distill that glut of data into useful decision-making tools and into useful consumer products as well. Well, that makes sense because since it's such a large data set, you do need some other automated process because I know I couldn't understand it all. One question I think that maybe the listeners may have is that, have you seen parts of the country or even maybe parts of the world that would be less impacted by climate change? Because when we think about where humans are moving by, I think, in the next 20 years, more of human, more of our humanity will live in cities than ever before. The mm-hmm. majority, in fact, will. And there are certain stressors that come along with that. Are there any places that you've seen in the U.S. that are less impacted by climate change? Are there certain places maybe in the world that you see through the use of data or maybe any studies that you all have participated in that have identified those? Or on the flip side, is it that there's no place that's necessarily quote unquote safe, but it's just which issue are you more likely to encounter? Yeah. So Amat, I think it's the latter, that there's no place that is immune to the effects of climate change. And given that, it's really important to pay attention to, to understand your, your site-specific environmental conditions and how those conditions interact with the specific climate risks that you're exposed to, to either exacerbate or mitigate climate risks. So if you're in the West, you're probably worried about wildfire 
And the way that wildfire plays out on the landscape is a direct component of fuels and vegetation and vegetation type, vegetation density, vegetation height, and how close that vegetation is to structures. You know, that's what determines the, the level of impact that that fire has on a community, on a household. And so understanding what that climate risk is, okay, my risk is wildfire, enables me to, to look at the, the site-specific environmental conditions surrounding me, the trees, the forest, the shrubs, and make a plan to turn these threats, these climate hazards, which are the trees around me, into an opportunity for resilience. So I can look to defensible space standards to understand how to cut the trees around me to improve resilience and fortify my home and my property against wildfire threats. So I, I think that that sort, of, that sort of thinking, depending upon where you are in the country, it may be wildfire, it may be heat waves, it may be ice storms, it may be flooding, heavy precipitation events or hurricanes. One really has to consider those threats, consider the how those threats are likely to, to play out on the landscape and interact with those local site conditions, and then understand how to strategize a way to modify those site conditions to become opportunities for resilience rather than threats. That's great to understand, and thank you for that. So pivoting a bit, when we think about the ability of Taryn to help companies, communities, cities understand what all of this data looks like. Can you talk about the best way that an organization who is interested in this can interact with Taryn to, to get sort of the, the most value out of that engagement? Yeah, so uh, we try to make it as easy as possible for people to use our data. We uh, deliver that data. We, you know, we distill this, this glut of geospatial data into really accessible, industry-specific, problem-specific analytic results that we then deliver through a web viewer. We're a SaaS company that we provide users with a, a web viewer and a subscription to our data that is continually updated and refreshed and responsive our, our user needs and questions. So we act as a SaaS platform, as a subscription platform to this data, but then we also are very engaged with our clients and are constantly working with with our the users of our data to discover new problems to solve and refine our products so that they address the exact problems and questions that are needed. So, but we try to we try to make it the process really easy and frictionless. Well, that's good to hear. And if anyone wanted more information on how they can engage Terran Services. What's the best way for them to contact or should they contact you or how does that process work? One can certainly contact me. Our website has a form that folks can fill out and engage with our company. Our website is terren4d.com, T-E-R-E-N-4-D.com. The 4D stands for the four dimensions analysis that we perform, three dimensions in the geospatial world, and then the fourth dimension is time. So that's probably the best way to reach us. 
Well, thank you, Kat, for being on the ESG Matters podcast. Thank you for such an informative conversation. And I hope that our listeners learned as much as I did. Thank you very much, Matt. I really appreciate you having me. Take care. Thank you for listening to the ESG Matters podcast. Please like, share, and subscribe to the ESG Matters podcast on your choice of podcast platforms. This podcast is brought to you by Amat Gumis and theme music by Dexter Thomas. Thank you.